Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. Today, we're here with David Chuddick. He's with Parallel Financial. David, we'd love to kick off our episodes with a story. So could you just tell us one of your most memorable real estate investment experiences? Yeah, absolutely. Well, actually, I, ha- I have two. And so the first one is last time I moved, um, uh, we're sitting in the attorney's office and the uh, the buyers of our house, their, their mortgage company wouldn't release the funds. And this was like at 4.55 on a Friday, which meant that we couldn't buy our house that we we're moving to. So we were homeless for about 15 minutes until the, until the funds got released. But um, the attorney literally said, I don't know that I can get this done today. We've called uh, the, the buyers are going through like an 800 number mortgage company. And I literally don't think I can get in touch with anybody. So you might be homeless for the weekend. So that's my, um, that was my stressful one. But, um, but yeah, so uh, I'm a financial advisor and I believe in all different types of assets and, and creative ways to build wealth. So we have, um, our son is, uh, he's going to the Darla Moore School of Business at University of South Carolina. And we just, we started looking at, I mean, if at all possible, we want all three of our children to graduate debt-free from college. Um, obviously, um, room and board is ridiculously expensive, um, and it's a big part of the expense. So um, at the University of South Carolina, you have to live in the dorms for the first year, or at least you have to pay for the dorms. And, and his dorm literally is 254 square feet for two people and uh, two adjoining rooms shared a bathroom, and you had four disgusting college boys complaining about mold in the bathroom, if that tells you how bad the bathroom was. So, so you know... Anybody who's been in a college dorm experience knows oh, it's what's going just, on. You know, it's horrible. It's just, you know, and some of the newer dorms are pretty nice, but but this was, you know, just not all that cool at all. So, you know, we started thinking about what are some creative ways, because obviously you can move out of the dorms in, uh, you know, after your first year. And I don't know, uh, you know, you guys are in bigger cities, different parts of the country, but, you know, a nice apartment in Columbia, South Carolina, it's going to probably start six, 600 a month on up to twelve, thirteen hundred $1,300 a month, which is kind of a lot of money. So, and, and like I said, we don't want him to graduate with debt, so we're not going to make him borrow money to pay for that. So, um I was talking with a mortgage broker friend of mine, and, and she had this idea. She's like, "Well, you know, a lot of uh, she she had a parent that decided to buy a house, kind of, and and put their child's name on the deed of the home. Um, so then it's it's about three hours away from us. So then we could call it a primary residence. So for tax purposes, I don't know what our property taxes are, but it's you know seven or eight hundred dollars a year versus four or five thousand a year if it were listed as a rental property." So we got a we got a real estate uh, agent and we went around and we looked for houses. Now, I don't know how the real estate market is in California or Chicago, but in Columbia, South Carolina, you can actually buy a house that'll that'll cash flow. So we spent uh, you know, a couple weekends looking for homes. We found a nice brick ranch home that was built in the 60s and I've lived worse places than it and you guys probably have as well. I mean, it's just a a cool solid house. Um we, um, with our son, the plan being for him to be on the deed, uh, he went through the whole real estate process with us. So while some of his buddies were probably on a Saturday morning, like literally just suffering from being hung over and dehydrated, he was out looking for, looking for properties with us. So, so we found a house, um, you know, as a family, my wife and I, and my son, we, we, 
you know, we made all the offers. We kind of, you know, we, we voted on how much should we offer? Um, what concessions would, should we ask for? So our 18 year old high, uh, college freshman was literally getting to, you know, to participate in buying a house. Um, especially back last year, I think we got like a 2.8% mortgage. So as a financial advisor, I really couldn't justify paying cash or putting a big down payment. So we put exactly 20% down, uh, financed 80% just to not. So what I'd like to do for the listeners, you said because of the 2.8% interest rate, you couldn't justify paying cash. And I think it would be really beneficial to maybe explain your thought process on that. Like, you know, when would it make sense to pay cash and why 2.8 would you just take out a loan? Yeah. So, um, I like having cash or funds available. So especially last year and and this year in in the stock markets has been a little bit different, but, um, you know, the the last few years, the markets have gone, you know, 15, 18, 20%. So why would you take money out of the market that, that is potentially, well, historically is going to earn 10% over, over time. Now, any given year, it could lose money. But, um, you know, if you're getting, if you're borrowing at 2.8, you know, you just got to look at that opportunity cost. So, you know, taking money that could earn, you know, at at kind of a minimum over time, you know, six or seven or eight or 9% and putting that towards, uh, you know, putting that towards a house where you're saving 2.8% just didn't make sense for me. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, we financed 80%. Um, but the cool thing is, um, you know, our 18 year old son was, um, you know, he was in the position where he was on the loan. So he had to, uh, you know, ran his credit, um, ran his income, which was literally a couple hundred bucks, but he's, he's on the loan, which is, which is a really cool thing. Um, he, uh, when we closed, he went to the to the real estate office. He signed, you know, you guys have bought some real estate, so you sign your name a hundred times. Kids nowadays don't even have a signature, so he had to figure out how to sign a document. And but it was just a, a really really cool experience. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so now he's yep. a property owner, and the short of it is, we're profiting. Um, so if we had to pay for him to have a, an apartment, we'd be writing a check for between six hundred and fifteen hundred dollars a month. Um, now we're profiting $200 a month, roughly. Now, admittedly, probably that's going to, that's going to build up in a fund to fix crap that college kids break, but still. Um, and then, uh, the, uh, the, the tenants were renting two bedrooms, uh, uh that's going to pay the mortgage and that, and we're splitting utilities. So there's about a two, $200 positive cash flow. Property is probably going to go up in value five, 6% a year. Uh, so when he graduates, you know, we can either sell it and, and walk away with, Thirty, forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars. We can keep renting it. We have two other kids that could live there, so it's just an asset. That's just a cool thing, and th- I just think that's a cool thing to do. And if you live in an area where the where the market will support, to where you can buy a house and and rent out bedrooms and have it somewhat cash flow, it's just a great, it's a great idea. Now, now the the the, the down points are potential liability. I mean, somebody does something stupid, um, burns the house down, you know doesn't pay the rent, you know, so there's always some risk with any type of investment. Um, but you know, if the two roommates don't pay rent for a few months, we have to find other roommates. Hey, we just, we have to pay it, but we, we'd be paying his rent somewhere else anyway. So, so yeah, so that, that's my cool story. And, you know, uh, I think it's a great thing to look into if you, uh, if you have a kid going to college. Totally. So what I'd like to do now is I'd like to dive into this story a bit and ask some questions. I'm sure listeners that have kids that are going to college would love this idea. 
and would probably have lots of questions for you on it. So question, I guess, number one that I have that comes to mind is with this strategy, the, the, the property goes in your son's name. Well, it's actually how in, much in does it three, function like it's that? It's in all three of our names. So, so the, uh, in the county, the deed is, is my name, my wife's name, and Evan's name, but we're all one third owners. Beautiful. Okay, cool. And and is it gonna is it functioning like that, or is that just more of, of the way it's set up? Like, do you guys plan to be one third owners permanently, or? Um, I mean, technically, we didn't put anything. We don't have a contract, so um, if if you know it, if we wanted to, or if he wanted to make us kind of buy him out, you know, when he graduates, I guess technically he could, since he's on the deed. Um, now he's a good kid and we would beat him to death if he did that. But, um, you know, for all intensive purposes, I mean, it's our home, but his, his name is on the deed, but, um, it's affecting his credit. And the way the liability works is that it's his primary residence. So if you slipped on the wet floor, you know, you would sue him, not, not us. Now, granted, he doesn't have any assets other than the home, but, um, you know, the person who, who, who's, who lives in the residence, you know, has, has the, has the liability. Yeah. Interesting. So essentially, more or less, it's you and your wife that is purchasing this home, but because he's living in it, he becomes an owner so that you guys get the primary residence benefits. And then kind of the general understanding is, hey, once you graduate college, you're going to deed yourself off and then we'll sell it. And in the in lieu of that, you're going to get to live in a much better place. We're going to be able to make some money together and it's just going to be a much better financial decision. Or, I mean, depend. You know, we could give him the house. You know, depending on how we are financially at the point. You know, I mean, so so you know, it's an asset. But but the idea is, yeah, we have you know, we have the the uh, the decision on what to do with the house is ours for sure. Um, but uh, you know, if things are rocking and rolling, and he gets a job, he could potentially just you know uh, take over payments himself and 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 keep the house. Or you know, so there are a lot of. You know, mon- money and assets, all they really do is create options and opportunities. I mean, if you don't have any money, there's no options for anything. If you don't have that house, you don't have the decision on can you give it to your son or sell it or keep it or whatever. So it's always good to have options and, and assets give you options uh, without a doubt. What a cool thing too. I mean, so you're exposing, I mean, it's going to be almost impossible. Like you said, he's there signing documents for him not to be exposed to the process to the paperwork, to the learning, to all those things. You're giving your kids a a great education. I'm assuming you're building his credit immensely. One question I have is what sort of credit, what did he have to do to get the credit necessary to even be on the loan in the first place? What kind of steps did you guys take when he was young to get him to a place that he would even qualify? Yeah. So that's, that's the interesting thing. And that's another thing that whether you're planning on having a strategy like this or not, if you have a kid who is not a total nut job that you can trust, um, put them on as an authorized user of one of, of one of your credit cards. And to be honest, they don't even have to know that they're on it. But in his case, when he got his driver's license, you know, one of our credit cards, all he knows is it's the red one. I think it's a Bank of America card. I'm not even sure, but it's the red one. He's paid for his gas with that red card forever. And if we ever said, hey, you know, you're 17, we're tired, go to the store and buy some milk and eggs, you know, he would use that red credit card and he would buy stuff. Now in theory, he could have maxed it out and bought something for $30,000 and there wasn't necessarily anything we could do about it. But now he has one credit card that he's an authorized user on that has a 25 or 30 or 40. I don't even know what the limit is, but it's a high limit and it's been paid off every month for, for three or four years of his life. So 
when he, because again, he's on the loan. He, his, his credit was factored in. I think his income actually was as well, but thankfully, you know, we didn't, we didn't need to show that as part of the ratios, but, um, his credit score, I think was a 780, you know, um, which, yeah. So if you think like, think about all the things that credit affects in your life. I mean, sometimes you can't get a cell phone. You can't buy a car. It affects your insurance. So when he graduates, as long as he doesn't do stupid things on, you know, on his own now, he's going to leave school without any of the limiting factors that bad credit starts, you know, can have on you. So he'll be able to, when he's, when he has to, when it goes time to get the, get his own cell phone, he's going to get the best rate. You know, his car insurance, he'll get a really good rate. If he, if he's going to buy a house, he should get a good rate. So, um, putting your child as an authorized user on a credit card is a great thing. Now, so Matt, if you had a, if you had a teenager, let's say you have a 16 year old and your 16 year old, maybe you don't trust all that much. Well, guess what? You put your 16 year old as an authorized user and you never give them the card. So they don't even know that it exists. And then, you know, you physically take that card and you put, you know, fill up your car every, every month. So he's, you know, there's some, you know, so they don't really have to even, I mean, you know, because as an authorized user, they can max out the card and there's no recourse. But if they don't know that the card exists, then, then, you know, you're just, uh, so it's just a, another, just a cool little trick to, to, to help your, uh, help your kids start off on the right foot. Yes. And so, and I know we got to get Tim in asking some questions, but I'm just like, so curious about this. So if, uh, how, what is the, do you have a nut job test? Um, like, is it just basically basic idea that your kid's going to spend money like freely without rationality or what would be kind of your, your clues? Yeah. I mean, I think you got to look at your kids and, and, and their past behavior. And he's always like, he's been in trouble like literally once in his whole life. So he's, you know, we, we trust him and he's a good kid. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to chalk that up to good parenting, um, on, on with my wife, uh, uh getting most of that credit. So, you know, you got to look at your kids, you know, we all do stupid crap when we're young, but, but, um, you know, the, 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 the thought of him ever, you know, maxing out a credit card, I don't think that that was never a concern for us. Um, but, but of course, you know, if, if big charges did show up, it, it would be too late to kind of do anything about those, but we could take him off the card, you know, at, at a point and, and, and eliminate that, that possibility in the future. So. All right, great. So, I mean, I love how much you are getting your son set up for success. I mean, he's in college right now. He owns a house. He has access to like $30,000 of credit. Are there any other strategies that you would recommend to set up your kids for success? Because I think this is just like the floor for your son is much higher than just about, you know, 80% of Americans just because of where he is right now, because he's already set up with equity. He's already got access to credit if he needs it. I mean, he's just, he's gloriously set up right now. Like, what else could we do? Yeah. So another thing that we've done for our kids is that we, um, my LLC, so as a business owner, and I know that a lot of your your listeners are more than likely business owners in the sense that they have an LLC or a corporation set up where they buy and sell properties, or they're business owners and and the the buying of properties is is a is a secondary business. Um, if you, if you employ your kids now, let me first say, I'm not an accountant. So check with your accountant. We're not giving tax advice, all that good stuff. But, um, 
if your kids are legitimately doing work for your company, so as an example, my kids do some social media work for, for me. They upload videos to TikTok. Um, our office, you know, they'll do some landscaping. They'll literally spread mulch and, and cut bushes and things like that. So then my office writes them a check. So that's an expense, right? That's money leaving the, the operating account. So that's lowering the profit of the business um, by the amount of their paychecks. Um, and if they don't make $12,000 a year, which I'm not paying them 12,000, they don't have to pay any taxes. So it's a way of getting money out of my business and paying less taxes, totally legal, as long as they're working. And if the IRS ever came back and said, you know, why did you pay your kid five or $8,000? We could show them, well, you know, here's, here's social media work and the going rate for social media consultant would be this. And, and, and we, we spread mulch, we have receipts when we bought mulch and all that good stuff. Um, so my office tax, my, my, my LLC taxes are, 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 are reduced. And then with them, um, some of their money, uh, can go into a Roth IRA and, and be saved, uh, um, and, and be distributed tax-free later on. So that's a great strategy. And also some of their money could just be used to pay for their stuff. I mean, you want to go to the movie? Great. Pay for it. You know, uh, oh, you want the $18 bucket of popcorn? Great. Pay for it. Um, I think that, most of our kids look at their parents as kind of a never ending source of money. And if, you know, we're blessed enough to where we're not multi-trillionaires, but within reason, whatever our kids want, we can have. I mean, if they want to go, you know, go to Chick-fil-A, you know, we have $10. But when it's your own money and then you're like, well, you know, I, my, my bank account's going down. My, my, my kids, especially my young ones, they are cheapskates when it comes to spending their own money they don't need anything when it comes to spending my money yeah they need it so um but yeah i mean teaching budgets teaching the fact that you only have as much money as you have um because like what do kids know about salaries they know how much lebron james salary is they know how much you know this actor you know made for a movie well guess what i mean that's you know, some of these athletes, they make literally more in one game than I'll make in years and years and years and years. So that's not reality. So learning, you know, learning how to spend what you have, um, and also learning that, you know, I mean, you got to work for what you get too. So, so we don't, you know, we don't give them a whole lot of free money. I mean, they're working for it. And I think that's, um, you know, learning work ethic is incredibly, incredibly important. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, get your kid on a, um, on a, uh, uh, an authorized user on a credit card. That's a great way to start building credit. And then if you own a business, employ your kids, uh, make sure that they're actually doing work and they're getting paid a reasonable amount to do that work. And then, you know, as a parent, you can't legally force your kid to buy their own food, but, um, you know, when you go on vacation, they can uh, buy their own souvenirs. They can, um, you know, if they need new soccer cleats or whatever, they can buy that. So almost a tax deductible allowance, if you think of it as that, that way. Fantastic strategy. And you're teaching your kids financial literacy, which is something that is obviously not taught in schools all that well. Um, so what a tremendous way to just set them up for success. Um, I wanted to get into this. And, uh, well, you know, and, and one of the things that I, 
Well, I was just going to say, like, as a financial advisor, you know, I look at every area of our, of our lives and you don't get, you don't drift to like excellent physical health. You have to do stuff. There are certain things you should eat and should not eat and you have to exercise. You just don't say, wow, I just kind of want to be healthy and I'm going to be, no, you have to work at it. Uh, you know, if you want to buy and sell properties, you just don't drift to where you own a portfolio. You have to be purposeful. If you want to have good relationships, you have, you don't drift. Well, the same thing with our money habits and having kids who are not going to end up bankrupt later on. It has to be a purposeful thing that we're teaching them how to deal with money. And a lot of people don't do that. So I just wanted to kind of get that out there because, you know, and even, you know, even from a selfish standpoint, hopefully with our kids, or if, if you have financially sound kids, you're not gonna have to bail them out with your retirement savings when they're thirties and forties and can't support themselves. And you're kind of at your end of your earning years. So, you know, there's, you, you want to teach your kids, but there's also, you know, maybe a little selfish ambition there too. So. Absolutely. So yeah, let's kind of get into your financial advisor background now. So like, what kind of mistakes do you think people make often when they're purchasing a house? Like we kind of got into this earlier when you were talking about like, I wouldn't buy cash because it doesn't make sense with the interest rate. What other potential mistakes do you think um, people are making right now? You know, one of the biggest mistakes, and it's not one of those sexy kind of uh, 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 headline mistakes, but not having good insurance and not having a good relationship with like an insurance agent who's not an 800 number is a huge mistake. You know, oftentimes people might say, you know, there's this house and it's a half million dollar house and, you know, insurance is, I don't like paying for it. It's a ripoff. So just insured for 300,000, which you can't do, but, um, you know, and, and I, I would never build a half million dollar house back anyway. So you got to know when you're, when you're a homeowner, you have the risk of what's going to happen to the property. If it's damaged, you have all kinds of liability risks. You have risks of, you know, does Matt own the home or does Matt's LLC own the home? And those are very, very important, um, um, questions that you need to, your insurance agents and you need to discuss to make sure that, you know, you're covered properly. Because let's face it, we live in a litigious society for sure. And there's just a lot of things that um, that can happen insurance wise. So, um, you know, make sure that you're you're talking with a good insurance agent when you own homes, you know, several different homes. There's, there's owner occupied, there's non-owner occupied, there's, um, you know, who... The, the correct entity that owns it. So, so insurance can be, excuse me, can be a big, big deal with, um, with, with home ownership and property ownership. Uh, the other thing, you know, we touched on, on the interest rates. So putting too big, you know, there's all kinds of different, um, philosophies on debt. Um, so, you know, I think my personal philosophy on debt is there's good debt and bad debt. If you're if you're buying an appreciating asset and nothing's guaranteed, but most real estate's going to tend to appreciate over time. If you have reasonable debt on it, I mean I'm fine with that. Um, you know, forty percent credit card interest on 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 last week's dinner that that we that's gone. I don't think that's good debt. So um, you know, you kind of have to when you're looking at debt and how much you're financing. You know, and I'm sure you guys have all kinds of formulas, but look at cash flow and look at the opportunity cost. So if you take money out of some investment, um, you know, and you pay put it into a house. You know, are you taking it out of something that's growing and, and putting it into uh, uh, something that's growing where it could grow in both spaces? both paces. So, uh, the amount of a down payment, I think is a, is a, is a big decision and there's a lot of different ways to look at it. Absolutely. Fantastic. 
So let's talk about business and business valuations now. So obviously, um, our, our audience typically is going to own a business. If, if they don't, they're probably making a mistake. Um, so what are ways that people can maximize the value of their business um, so that you know it's something that is sellable in the future and things of that nature? Yeah. So... You know, as a financial advisor, I work with people, uh, you know, on their brokerage account, their typical, you know, should you buy Amazon? Should you sell Amazon? And that's very, very important. But I work with entrepreneurs and a lot of times they're not looking at like, how do I maximize the value of my business so I can sell it for the most amount of money when I'm ready to retire? So um, there are eight drivers of business value, and I can kind of tell you what they are. We're not going to dive into each one of them, but there's kind of the financial performance. So if you own a business, let's say, let's say Matt owns a restaurant and Tim owns a restaurant and, and they're very, very similar, but, but Matt's restaurant is, you know, is, is, is profiting $500,000 a year. Um, Tim's bringing in the same amount of revenue, but it's profiting, you know, it's not profiting at all. It's losing money. Well, obviously that, 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 there's something going on there, right? So I would I would certainly pay more for Matt's restaurant because of the financial performance. Um, other things like debt and everything kind of get in there as well. You know, growth potential. Are you in an industry that can grow or are you in a going backwards industry? You know, think about Blockbuster not too long ago. You know, that was, you know, they they, they had revenue for a while, but, you know, it was an industry that was dying. So that that's why nobody wanted to buy it. Um, you know, uh, recurring revenue is very, very important. So if you're a business that is constantly having to sell something in order to generate revenue, you're, you have less of a, less of a value. Whereas if you, if you have a, and that's why so many companies have subscription based, um, um, models right now, because if you can, if you can get somebody's credit card and, and, and charge them even a, a small amount of money per month as a subscription model, that's certainly uh, certainly her, helps evaluation. Uh, you know, hub and spoke. How much is the business owner involved with everything in the business? So if you kind of think about it, like look at the franchise model. Nobody owns one franchise restaurant. You either own zero or you own like 30 of them because there's a system where the owner is not ringing up customers. The owner is not um, you know, mopping floors. The owner is kind of overseeing everything. And that's why franchises are, sell for such a premium because the owner is not involved in everything. So even something like what's the name of the business? If it's like Matt's hamburger joint, it's going to tend to sell for a little bit less because people, customers are coming to see Matt. And when Matt sells it, um, and now David owns it, people are like, well, I'm not coming here anymore. This is, you know, I don't get to see Matt. Um, and then, um, you know, customer satisfaction, like customer satisfaction is just so huge. And all of our businesses, I'm sure we, we might overestimate how, how satisfied our customers are, but by constantly having, uh, surveys and just monitoring how, you know, your, your retention, um, you know, how typical are your retention numbers compared to other, uh, companies in the same industry and just making sure that you're, you're, you're maximizing that driver of, of value, uh, customer satisfaction. Um, and then monopoly that, that's, do you have, like one, do you, do you do something that's different than the other businesses that are similar? Um, or are you kind of the same? So if you can figure out a monopoly in your industry or in your geographical area or in your town, you typically have a much higher, um, multiple to sell. And then, um, you know, you look at it kind of the other side, is there any one part of your company that's overly dependent on somebody or something? So, um, there are companies that, 
um, they have online companies that that sell an overwhelming majority of their sales through Amazon. Well, you know, Amazon can change their policies at any time. So if you're depending too much on one thing, then that drives down a value as well. So so um, you want to have a monopoly on a market, but you don't want to have any market or 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 employee or team member or vendor having 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 a monopoly on you. So. So like we said, with with your health and your financial health, your business is not going to have a maximum value just by drifting. It's going to have a maximum value by being purposeful. And, um, you know, I, I help business owners to, to build their the value of their business in a very, very purposeful way, if that makes sense. Um, I love to dive into the monopoly thing a little bit, um, given the day and age of today, you know, growing a, a big scale monopoly like a railroad or an oil baron type thing. That's not really popular quite possible. But I imagine when you say monopolizing, you're talking about niching down. Um, am I correct there or, or, or kind of? Sure. That's exactly what it, that's exactly what it is. Right. Yeah. So if, if, if you look at, um, let's say me, so I'm a financial advisor. Um, I believe I'm the best one out there. However, there are how many other financial advisors, you know, even in my state, well, how many financial advisors are, never even doing a valuation on their customer's business? How many of them are not working with them on how to maximize um, the value of their business? So so I'm building a monopoly on the kind of that business owner market by, you know, niche or niche, depending if you're from Canada, um, niching down to a kind of a certain, a certain industry and offering something that is much, much, much more different than what everybody else is offering. So, um, uh, you know, if you're doing what everybody else is doing, th- there's no premium to pay for your business. So, all right, wonderful, wonderful answer, David. So, um, what is your vision for like the next twelve to twenty-four months? What are you working on with, at Parallel Financial? What are you trying to grow over there? Yeah, so that's that's a really really interesting uh, question. I, I actually work with a, a business coach, and and we do a lot of vision planning, and um, we 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 do a lot of kind of talking about what does success look like for me. So there's obviously you know revenue and income numbers that that I would like to see for my family for all of the things that money does. Um, you know, just having money in the bank is not the goal, but having what the money can do for me um, and for my family and for charities and everything else is um, is a goal. But um, I have a heart for the entrepreneurs of the world because I've been there. I've had payroll coming due and it's like, holy crap, their paychecks do. I don't know that we have enough money um, to, to do that. I've had, you know, the toilet overflow and well do you pay a plumber a couple hundred dollars or do you figure it out yourself i've had so you know the, the entrepreneurs have so much that they have to do and they have to know um and i just i i i i just have such a passion for them so i want to i'm building a practice that just helps entrepreneurs have a better life and part partly by by how much money they have but you know, also by like how they manage that money and what they do with it. You know, part of my practice is I'll always talk to you about giving, you know, when we're kind of in the initial stages of planning. So, you know, how much should you be giving to, to organizations or to a church or, 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 or who knows what, because that's, you know, nobody ends up on their proverbial deathbed and says, yeah, you know, 
Matt was on, you know, he really kind of went through some times and he asked me for money and I didn't help him. And I'm glad I didn't. No, I mean, most people will be on their deathbed saying I, sh- I should have helped him more. Um, or maybe there was an organization I should have helped more. So I'm, I'm building a practice that, that helps entrepreneurs to live better lives, primarily by how they handle their money. But we look at a lot of other things as well, kind of holistic. Tremendous answer. So obviously we work, our audience is a lot of entrepreneurs. If, if anybody is looking to reach out to you, David, what would be the best way for them to do so? Yeah. So if they have any just specific questions, anything they want to bounce off of me, my email address is david at parallelfinancial.com. I'm always happy to do a Zoom call and, and I don't really have any geographical restrictions. I can meet via Zoom. Um, licensing is not really that much of an issue. So anybody anywhere, if there's anything keeping you up at night regarding your money, just email me. We can talk about it. And if there are some next steps, we can take them. And if there aren't, you know, sometimes just bouncing um, bouncing an idea off of uh, off of a so-called expert is a good idea. Um, you can also check out two of my websites. So I host a podcast called the Weekly Wealth Podcast. We're going to have a couple really interesting guests on uh, pretty soon as well. Um, uh, their names are Matt and Tim. Uh, but, um, we talk about the mindsets, the tactics and the strategies that can help you to build and maintain wealth. So we do everything from, from talk to therapists on how to handle stress, to talk to physical, um, with trainers on how to be healthy. And we just help try to help people have better lives and money is part of it. Um, and then, um, the website for business owners is www.allofmyassets.com. And, and the reason why it's the name of that, um, that that's the name is because, um, we look at all of your assets and as a business owner, your business is, is your biggest asset and we want to help grow that as well. Um, and I can, uh, maybe in the show notes, I, we have a bunch of different, uh, eBooks that may, uh, may be interesting, uh, to, uh, to some of your listeners as well. Just pretty cool stuff. Fantastic. All that information will be in the show notes. I do want to get one thing out before we wrap. Um, David, Matt and I are both fiduciaries. You're a fiduciary as well. Can you talk about like what's the difference between a fiduciary financial advisor and the majority of them out there? Because I'm pretty sure most of them don't have that standard. Right. So um, a fiduciary advisor and as a certified financial planner, I have to adhere to the to the board of standards. We have the absolute duty to put the client's interest above ours. So, you know, putting any sort of, um, you know, hey, if I sell them this product, I make this much money. If I sell them this product, I make more money. So I'm going to kind of lean them towards that's that's totally not not acceptable as a fiduciary. So um, in our firm, the way that we handle investments, I mean, we don't have any we don't have any any incentives to use to buy any, uh, you know, any one company versus versus another. But basically, a fiduciary is is a is a person or or an entity that is just required to have a duty to put uh, put the client's interest ahead of theirs. And um um, in the financial advisor world, if you're selling mutual funds and things like that, there's just there's less of a duty to uh, to make sure that it's the right thing for the client. So always work with a fiduciary if you have any option whatsoever, because um, you know we have to put the put the interests of our clients above ours, and and we have the obligation. If there's an area where I don't have expertise, I have a literal obligation to say, you know what, I can't help you here because I don't have the expertise to help you. This is out of my wheelhouse. Um, I even, um, even to the point of which attorney, you know, if you were in my town and we were getting, um, you know, you needed some estate planning work done, I would have to justify which attorney 
I'm referring you to if I'm if I'm referring you to. So it just can't be my buddy. It has to be someone with expertise in that area of law. So so fiduciary is extremely extremely important. I'm glad that you brought that up. All right, that is a very succinct answer. Thank you so much for that. Um Mr. David Chuddick, we want to sincerely thank you for coming on our show and giving us a glimpse of your life and business and to everyone else out there that is chasing freedom. Freedom is acquired one action at a time. If you do nothing else, please write down one thing that you got from today and make sure to implement that in the next seven days and share it with somebody you know that can hold you accountable. And before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. Thank you for tuning into today's episode and we'll catch you on the next one.